Welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have David Cleveley in his garden here. It's autumn and beautiful and the birds are singing in the background. So David, tell us a bit about your background. Well, I was originally born in Germany where my parents were over an RAF base and came back to England when I was about two or so. Grew up in southwest London, went to the local grammar school, did a whole load of peculiar things like setting off rockets and stuff that you can't do these days. And was sponsored at university by what was then called Post Office Telecommunications. Learned an awful lot about how telecoms networks work by actually doing some soldering and putting on wellies and climbing down into manholes and all of that kind of stuff. Did a degree in cybernetics, instrument physics, and mathematics at Reading. Went to work for the Long Range Studies Division at Post Office Telecoms in Cambridge. That long range has in distance between mast... And that long range as in what was going to happen over the next 20 or 30 oh, years, really which interesting. sadly, all of which is now in the past. <laughs> um, so the stuff I worked on at the long range studies division was what happens if you had these computers that could sit on your desk and you could actually type things with them and communicate with them and do calculations. So this was the mid, late 70s? Yeah, this is kind of, yeah, 76, 78. And what happens, there were these things called citizen band radios, and I did a report saying there's this pent-up demand for the idea that people could carry around devices that would enable them to talk to anybody without having connected to wires. It had the security classification. The existence of this report is not to be acknowledged to anybody. I think, in retrospect, that was because somebody senior in the rest of post office telecoms wanted to claim the credit for it. But right. There we go. Okay. That's it. So I cut my teeth on that stuff. It was yeah, yeah. looking ahead. It was a monopoly. Telecommunications was a monopoly. So we looked at models of what would happen when competition was introduced. That was under a Labour government before Thatcher came in and began all that process. So it taught me how to think ahead. Taught me how to think ahead. And in particular, I mean, there was one thing, if we've got time for me to tell you. I was asked to look at the prices of semiconductors and memory devices and to try and forecast how they were going to move. And it was part of a thing called a Delphi panel. Delphi panels where you get a group of experts together and they all put their views in and then they take the average and then they go back to the outliers and say, well, this is what all the other experts think. What do you think? Would you move your estimates? So Moore had just come out with his book at that point. So I read Moore's book and I did a bit of investigation and I got some five cycle log paper. So it's five decades of orders, five orders of magnitude. And I drew some lines on it and submitted this and the guy came up from london first of all he was a bit surprised because i think i must have been 23 at the time i was you know definitely in short trousers and he came to see me after he got over the fact that i looked like i was too young to be doing this kind of stuff he said look all the experts think that these prices will move by three to eight percent per year and you have these prices going down at 30 40 50 60 percent a year not just one year they go on and on and on he said, it's incredible. Do you realize you could store a whole A4 page, and by that he meant 10K bytes, for one-tenth of a penny? <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So explain the Delphi panel thing. So you're now going to have to move your estimate. And I said, no. He said, well, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the Delphi panel. So I was booted off. So the whole of the digital switching architecture of the United Kingdom was based on a bunch of experts who thought that electronics and memory devices would decrease in price around about 3 to 8% per year. Rather than the doubling or the whatever it is every 18 months. Yeah, and it taught me a very good lesson there. One, one was, I was coming at this with no preconceptions, being in my early 20s. 
and so trust people in their early 20s because they've got no preconceptions. They've seen what is going on. They can extrapolate from it. Yeah. They may not have the business savvy. I mean, I didn't have any of the economics business savvy, as you can tell. I mean, you know, telling somebody much more senior than me that they were yes, wrong exactly. and I wasn't going to cooperate. Career. Well, I, I mean, I, I left and went and did a PhD at Cambridge after that. But that was okay. But that really taught me a lesson about how the older you get, the more hidebound you become about what you think is realistic or how the future is going to work out. If you want to know how the future is going to work out, don't ask somebody in their 50s. Mm. Go and ask somebody in their 20s. They might come up with some crackpot things, but if you're in your 50s and they're in their 20s, you can probably interpret it better as long as you've got an open mind. Yeah. And then you moved on to PhD. So you left the post office, came here to Cambridge. Yeah, I was interested in developing countries. And in particular, again, this is incredible to think. At that point, most aid was focused on big irrigation systems and dams and that kind of stuff. Nobody thought telecommunications was important. And everybody thought that phones were a luxury. So if you're a developing country, you shouldn't have phones. You should have um, sprinkler Water systems. and food. Yeah. yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, I mean, it, it is incredible to think now that that's what the attitude was. So my PhD was part of changing that attitude. It was um, it's called Regional Structure and Telecommunications Demand, a case study of Kenya. So I did a lot of field work in Kenya. I did some spatial mapping. I developed some theories about regional structure and how it worked and changed World Bank policy because I did some stuff for the World Bank as an economist on a couple of missions, one to Kenya and one to Algeria, and shifted World Bank policy away from just investing in capital cities and also thinking of telecommunications as something that if you had access to it, then actually the economy could function better. And that meant also residential people having access to telecoms. And this was copper and fixed line, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's, that's way back, you know. Yeah, it was all copper stuff. So this is early 80s. I mean, mobile stuff had just started. I got very excited at the end of when I was at the Long Range Studies Division about that mobile telecommunications. And I'd actually been in touch with Marty Cooper at the time because he was the guy who started to talk about cells and how they were going to actually make mobile communications the architecture of the network actually make it happen. And I kicked off a project on that, in fact, did some work on it. But the full scale of what that revolution was going to happen was kind of in the air. You knew two things. You knew this data stuff was going to make a big difference. And you knew that the mobile stuff was going to make a big difference. I mean, that data stuff, you know, I was, because I was doing this thing on semiconductors and I knew which we were going, I was pulled down to London, I think it must have been 77. 78, early 78 probably, early 78, to get a presentation from a mad professor at UCL who wanted some money from us and from this very strange American agency associated with defense to do this weird thing called packet switching, which they were going to do by satellite across the Atlantic. And they were going to play with it. And they wanted to try and do voice and video and various other things and experiment. And my head of division turned to me I give him good credit for this because he was, he's an interesting chap. And he said to me, David, should we fund this? And I said, Jim, we should fund this because someday all communications will be by packet. Hmm. And the reason why I said it was that having done the study about, you know, where the electronics and memory costs were going, it just seemed to me that the economies of scope and scale that you got when you went down that digital route, and the ability that they then had, and as I've seen the architecture, this is the first time I'd ever actually seen the internet, and it wasn't really quite pure TCP IP at that point, but it was getting close. 
And then I went, okay, yeah, I've, I've got this. This just unlocks everything. You can just churn this stuff out and plug and play. That's going to beat any circuit switched system by country mile, which is why I said it. Yeah, yeah. You're obviously involved with mobile telecoms and now in developing worlds. So what happened straight after uni then? Did you go into a corporate role? Or? Yeah, well, I'd left Long Associates Division to do my PhD. So I then went down to work at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Or as one American client I talked to said, the communist what? Um, <laughs> the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit is part of the Economist newspaper group. And they were set up because people were asking the Economist for lots of data. So they started to do a little bit of consultancy and they published things. And they had a little consultancy doing information communication technology. And I joined and then I got promoted to be the divisional director for telecoms, which was a bit of a massive set of responsibility given how little experience I got. I made some money for them. I made lost some money. I, I acquired clients. And I basically, after a couple of years, I realized that I could probably do this myself. I wanted to do my own thing. And because the Cambridge Phenomenon book had been published and got a lot of press, I thought, well, I'm fed up with commuting. I'm going to set up my thing in Cambridge and I'm going to do it on the science part because that's the way in which we'll have kudos and cachet. So I shared some premises with a chap called Mike Gardner, now sadly passed away, who had a company called Al Communications and kicked off my consultancy company analysis at 85. Oh, okay. And first of all, most of the thing was got off the ground by doing contracts for the beloved European Commission. And that was because at the Economist Intelligence Unit, I'd done a bit of work for the European Commission and there were people there who liked what I did. So when I went somewhere else, they started to give me some bits of work. But we built up commercial stuff with BT and various others. At the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, got a big, big breakthrough doing some modelling work about the future of telecoms investment in Europe, which was from 1990 to 2010. So that was playing on a lot of my modelling skills, a lot of the stuff I'd done at Long-Range Studies Division. And that turned out to be quite an important piece of work, not only because of the groundbreaking nature of it, but also because it got us in front of all the telecom operators in Europe, who at that point were all struggling with the notion of what happens with competition. And then began a long run during the 1990s of analysis becoming the place to go to if you wanted to understand about the interaction between technology, economics, and business in telecommunications. And as one M&A person said, there wasn't a deal in Europe going on at the end of the 1990s that analysis wasn't involved in on one side or the other. So were you competing with people like KPMG's specialist department? Yeah, we could, we could just knock them out of the way. I mean, the thing is that they were specialist departments, but mm. really they had nothing like the depth of knowledge that we had. And one of the things that I did at analysis and probably I could have made far more money than I ever made, even with Abcam or anything else, if I'd really taken this one seriously, is I built a whole series of web-based knowledge systems to underpin the consultancy. So before anybody else was doing this, we had a CRM system that we built ourselves. We were managing documents and working papers. And so where anybody was in the world for analysis, and we were operating in loads of countries, we had offices in Washington and Kuala Lumpur and Paris and Munich and so on, wherever they were in the world, we could access all the central database. And this was way ahead of anything anybody else could do. And all projects that we'd ever done were always available to all the consultants mm. and all the contacts and everything else. So we were significantly more efficient and had greater depth of knowledge about telecoms than anybody else. What I didn't understand was towards the end of the 1990s, as this first internet bubble took off, how many charlatans would then pile in and how the valuations would go up through the roof, how everything would basically be set fair for falling apart. I really, 
I just didn't get it. How did that affect you, though, within analysis and your consultancy? Oh, well, first of all, I should have accepted the offer of going to probably sell out at some point. Sell out yeah. for at least 70% more than I sold out for in 2004. I should have absolutely done that because I would have got four years of my life back. And they turned out, of course, after a collapse like that, it turns out to be three or four years of your life that's pretty stressful. Got to get the company through those things. Basically, it affected us by people doing crazy things, investors putting a lot of pressure on us to drive up valuations, which we were not prepared to do. Did you have any external investors then at that point? No, 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 no. We, we were doing that. So somebody was bidding for a telecom license in India, number. Yeah, right? Okay, yeah. And you go, well, actually, that's how much it's worth. And then they lost it. And then they come back and blame you because you didn't put a high enough valuation on it. And we say to them, look, if we put a high enough valuation on it for you to have won that, yeah. you'd be bankrupt. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we saved you. Yeah, yeah. So we were the rational people in the game. But when everybody's mad, the rational person suffers. Yeah. Anyway, what happened was we were the last people standing, effectively, because everybody else got swept away, which enabled us to survive and enabled me then to actually finally sell to the company who had offered a lot more money in 2000, <laughs> sell it to them in 2004. Excellent. And how big were you at this point? Say people or revenue or something? Oh, 13, 14 million pounds, about 130 people. We're still based in Cambridge and all over the world, yeah. Cambridge, London, Glasgow, Milan, Madrid, Munich. Those are all the ones beginning with M. And obviously entrepreneurs and to some extent the angels who listen to this podcast like the concept of being able to exit, as we all know. Ah, we'll come to that later. Ah, right. so well, let's well, talk I through can, that. Well, let's talk about the exit. The, the point about that was that in 2000, I hadn't really prepared for exit. It was a lot of the place was dependent on me. I managed to do some sales of some big consultancy projects after that collapse as everybody else was going out of business. But that really made me very concerned because if it was dependent on me doing the sales, then we had a problem. We had these systems in place which enabled everybody to operate things. So basically, I began a program of three years of devolving stuff and making myself entirely replaceable. So by 2004, when it was time to step away, I actually could leave the company with cash right. in my pocket, yes. which is something that you very rarely do, if ever, with a consultancy company. So you were 130 people. So, I mean, a 30 person, I can imagine, but 130, you had a set of lieutenants sure, sure, that sure, could sure. step up, presumably. Sure. Yeah. yeah, well, which I did. Of course, lieutenants is one way to put it. There are other slightly, you know, when you go around and ask people how much percentage of the company they would want, and you end up with a number that's about... 350 or 400% of the company when you add everybody's share up, <laughs> excluding your own, you know, you've, you can see the tensions arise in that. In so that did you proactively sell or reactively? In other words, when you actually did the exit, did they come back to you? Did you keep in touch with them? No, we did. We did, we did um, it was basically the core strategy of the company was after the 2001 stuff, I'm going to set this up for sale, right? Yeah. And now I'm going to get the team so they're all incentivized to do that, which meant giving them some equity. I'm going to get the thing making profit i'm going to make sure the turnover goes up we will be set fair that's how we're going to do it and i will step away right so my promise was to do that okay fine and, and you handed over completely in 04 yeah and went on it's a very interesting part of the rest of your life with huge amounts of different directions let's just talk a bit about the other company you helped set up of course abcam yeah because that's your other major company that you've built isn't it yes so we've talked to jonathan milner so we've got some of the story but can we just spend three or four minutes on you know how that went for you? Yeah, well, I, Abcam's an interesting thing. And as Pasto says, chance favours the prepared mind. Jonathan and I had that conversation over dinner, which was um, as a result of our wives knowing each other because they were working together. 
and the conversation was between somebody who had developed a whole load of web technology and run a business and somebody who was a researcher in antibodies and was fed up with the quality of antibodies. He knew how antibodies got produced. I didn't. Mm. I understood from talking to him what the economics of antibodies were, and I, I couldn't believe the twenty-pound note margin. Was, exactly, twenty-pound note was left on the pavement. I mean, you know, I remember saying to him, "There must be something wrong here. You can't ship these out of the laboratory." And he said, "Oh no, no you can stick them in an envelope, and they'll survive two, three, four days in the post." I went, "Bloody hell, we got a business!" Right, and you co-founder, so you were a co-founder. Yeah. You put money in, some money in. Oh, quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, Amchem hadn't had a trouble-free history when Abchem nearly went bust in 2001 again, or when all this crisis was developing. Yeah. No, 2000, it predated some of these other bits and pieces. I put £420,000 of my pension fund into Abchem, which was the majority of my pension fund. Right. So I bet the majority of my pension on that one company. Do you have an executive role? Presumably not, because you're still running analysis at this point. You haven't handed over. You can see from where we're sitting, listeners, you won't be able to see it, but just through there, there's a gazebo, which will be forever known as the... Abcam mentoring gazebo. <laughs> and every Saturday for three or four hours, I would sit with Jonathan. Uh, well, in, certainly in the summer when the weather was like this, we'd sit there on a Saturday morning and I'd talk him through how the company was going right. and what to do. So I was dedicating, even when I was doing analysis, I was dedicating several hours a week to doing it. Yeah, so certainly. yeah, quite and a you lot. You stayed on the board through the flotation. Yeah, well, as chairman, I took it through flotation. And then about three years through flotation after that, I stepped down. I mean, the, the company was changing. There's need for growth. There's all sorts of stuff needed to happen. And I think you need to recognize how that change has happened. I mean, Jonathan himself stepped down as chief exec a little while later. And, you know, new chairman, new chief exec in there. And, you know, companies change. It's market cap over $2 billion at the moment. Yeah, that's right. As we record this. Are these your two main entrepreneurial journeys, do you think? Or have you got any others to talk about now before we move on to investing? Entrepreneurial journeys. Well, I mean, I, I think really the focus that I've got at the moment, where I've got a number of companies and I'm nurturing through, I'm very, very closely involved. I mean, I've taken the view, a bit like you, Peter, with the invested investor. It's all very well having a punt through EIS and getting some tax relief. Chances of anything good happening with that are pretty remote, unless you know the other investors and you know other people are taking an interest. Now, the only stuff I'm doing now is where I would describe myself as a almost half-executive role. It's stuff where I'm coaching, mentoring, I'm deeply involved to the extent that, you know, one of our mutual companies, Controllis, I was up in Thetford a couple of days ago, walking through with Simon the product plan for a new product mm. and literally going through line by line what the features were, what the bomb cost was and what we could price it at and how that pricing would then be placed in the market. That's fairly detailed stuff. That's strong mentoring. And you actually worked for the MOD in a quite senior role, didn't you, while you were still at Analysis? My name had got around a little bit, and very oddly, people from the MOD started turning up at conferences I was speaking at and then quietly having words with me over coffee, trying to persuade me to join the board that was responsible for all of the IT and communications for defence. I had no idea what they were on about, really. It was surreal, I think, is the way to describe it. It included a trip down through the box tunnel works. There's two and a half million Corsham, square feet. Corsham, yeah, Corsham. Yeah. There's two and a half million square feet of tunnels under there. Storage? And I, got, or? I got a guided tour. 
Well, in the Second World War, it was used for storing munitions. It had enough munitions down there to prosecute the war for all the Allies for 40 days. So it gives you some idea about how big an area this was and the railway marshalling yards under the tunnel and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, they put all the stops to persuade me to join this board, and in the end, I did. I thought, I can't stand it. I don't want any more brigadiers turning up at my speeches and (laughs) trying to persuade me. Anyway, it was a very interesting experience, and I stayed on that board for its existence, actually. And by the end of it, me and another chap, Roger, were the the longest-serving members of that board and were kind of its memory and experience and expertise. And what was the remit? Well, we were just looking at what their plans were and how they were thinking about investing in projects. The budget was uh, 1.7 something like that. It's a fairly sizable budget. And we were just there to make comments and make suggestions. And my stuff was, I'll I'll give you an example. Again, it goes back to the long-range studies division. That really was a formative experience. If you're thinking about defence, you are thinking out 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And you've got to think about in that kind of long-term way. So when you're then engaging with contractors who are supplying you, say, with telecommunications services, who they're not thinking in those terms, but you have to sign contracts that might go out that distance, you have to frame the conversation in a particular way. And my contribution to that was to suggest to them that they went back to the contractors and said, what happens if our demand for bandwidth is 100 times what we say it is. Just yeah. imagine that we've told you this is our future demand for yeah. communications. Now just multiply it by 100 and let's have a discussion about what that will be, right? And the result was that we changed all the contractual arrangements because one of the things that you get with the public sector is you do a contract with somebody. It's not the cost of the contract that's important. It's what's the marginal cost of change, mm. right? And so what we did was we then changed the marginal cost of change. I did a few other bits and pieces about, you know, getting to do a price list of actually what were the services and bits of equipment we were offering and could you actually get more of a market internally in the MOD for doing these kinds of things. That was an interesting time, but I learned an awful lot. Frustrating at times. Oh, yeah. Unbelievably frustrating. Unbelievably frustrating. You could say things and you'd no idea whether they ever have any impact or not. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, for me... I don't know whether I made a difference to defence. I would hope that I did make things a bit better. But for me, I learned an awful lot about how government works and how, in particular, large contracts and large organisations work. We oversaw the reduction in size of that part of MOD from a headcount of about 5,400 to a headcount of 1,800 with a huge increase in the services and equipment that was deployed. So that was over an eight-year period. I'd never been part of a program like that mm. and seeing how that operated and the rebuilding of Caution, which we had to do as well, complete rebuilding of the site. That for me was a great learning experience about how large entities, organizations, we're going to say corporations, how large organizations need to deal with things and the difference in dynamic between that and when you've got a new startup and you've just got four people. Yes, yes. Wow, what a journey David has had. Thank you for taking time to listen to David's incredible story from post office telecommunications to the Department of Defence, whilst making a name for himself in Cambridge. With ventures such as Cambridge Network, Cambridge Wireless and Abcam, we hope you enjoyed it. Listen out for part two, in which we find out his top tips for entrepreneurs and investors. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com or via a number of podcast platforms online. 
Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. investor.